Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalog of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Afternoon, Chris. Hope all good. Today we are going to look at a number of topics in our podcast. Inflation data out of the United States sending out some pretty strong messages about global supply chain issues. Um, we want to look at the market reaction to that and generally what's going on in the markets at the moment. And tied into that, the European Central Bank made some interesting changes to its mandate last week. Um, Irish corporation tax has become pretty topical in recent times, but you know, following the G20 at the weekend, um, it's more topical than ever. Uh, lots of stuff happening in the Irish labour market. And of course, we're going to wrap up with a brief look at the COVID situation to see exactly uh, what's happening out there at the moment. But we're going to try to stick to our core competency, which is um, economics, I hope. So, Chris, um, what do you make of today's pretty alarming U.S. inflation numbers? Certainly on the face of it, Jim, a rise of 5.4% in the headline rate, which was 0.9% month over month. That's nearly 1% on the month. Those, that monthly figure is kind of what in recent years we've been used to on a year over year basis. Core inflation, which is something that is more relevant to policy, at least a little bit. This is what the Fed and indeed, other central banks will look at when it comes to changes in interest rates, potential changes in interest rates going forward. That was 4.5% year over year and was also 0.9% month over month. There are all sorts of interesting aspects to these numbers, not least the financial market reaction to them, which I'll come on to in a moment. But it's the breakdown, what's actually happening within those headline numbers. Cars, 
in, in various manifestations accounted for a large share of the increase. This has been a pattern that's been present in US inflation at least for a few months now. Used cars, new cars, auto parts, car rentals made up about 60% of the core month over month inflation number. That's an extraordinary statistic. And there's lots going on there, not least something we've discussed on the podcast before, which is a shortage of chips, which of course doesn't just affect cars, but in this particular case, it's leading, helping to lead to a shortage of cars. It's not the only driver of the shortage. The manufacturers of cars obviously cut back on production over the course of the last year. And this is the classic as the economy is reopened and demand suddenly appears uh, almost from nowhere. Um, you can't make a car or at least enough cars overnight. And so that's one source of shortage, which we presume will be short lived as supply catches up with demand. But there is this global shortage of chips that we've mentioned before. And that could last, so we are told, by the various chip manufacturers for a year or two. And that has all sorts of interesting side consequences as well. There's currently a big push on in the EU to try to persuade Intel to locate a big new fabrication plant across various countries in Europe, actually. That's separate from what they're doing in Leakslip in Ireland, of course, the French in particular are very keen to get their hands on that inward investment, Intel being one of the world's largest chip manufacturers, for example. But the, the, one of the other main ones is a company called TSMC, which is located in, in Taiwan. And these companies are having to invest huge amounts of money because we do have this shortage of chips in a world where, you know, we do have chips with everything. In terms of cars, I've tried to look for how best to see how that can affect us as ordinary punters with respect to the reopening of our economies going forward. We know that July the 19th in various jurisdictions, not least Britain and Ireland, is a big day. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. But it does mean that some of us, at least, will be thinking about going on holiday. And one of the things that we do when we go on holiday, of course, some of us anyway, is rent cars. I often, at this time of year, rent a car in France. It's a busy time of year in the summer. I know that in the south of France, for example, which is always an expensive place to rent a car, in the summer, it can cost you €100 a day, give or take for the smallest car rental. So if you're going down for a long weekend, say five days in August, you should budget for at least 500 quid, if not more, if you want a decent sized car. And I've just gone onto my favorite website for car rental in the south of France. And what would normally at this time of year cost me 500 euros for five days, and this is the smallest car rental, it would be a very small hatchback, something like a Fiat 500, something like that, on one of the mainstream car rental sites, as opposed to the usual 500 quid, the quote I'm getting right now is for two grand, which is quite something. So there clearly is something big going on in the car market. We can assume, I think, that it's temporary, these increasing car prices, that car manufacturing will eventually catch up. But this is the big question overall for these inflation numbers is what, to what extent are they temporary? How long will it take for supply to catch up with demand? And will there be any leakage into wage inflation and persistent inflation? And all through the first half of this year, regular listeners to this podcast will know that we've talked about all of this. And our bet has been that it will be temporary. But it certainly is proving to be quite a long period of temporary increases. 
During that first half of the year, every time we had an inflation print that was higher than expected, that was worryingly high, the markets sold off. And we got, in particular, in the all-important bond market, the market in which governments borrow their money, bond yields spiked up and equity markets would typically react badly to that. So anybody invested in the stock market would also, just like the bond market investor, hate inflation. But as we speak, the US stock market, for instance, is flat on the day and is very close to, if not actually at, its all-time high. So there's been a big change in financial market reaction to this continuing very poor, very bad inflation news. That's elicited all sorts of explanations. Commentators' favorite explanation is that the Fed is playing a blinder. The US central bank has managed to put a lid on inflation expectations by effectively promising earlier than expected interest rate rises, still not in the immediate future, but certainly acting, talking a little bit tougher than it had been. And so the markets appear to be confident that that our explanation that we've given that these inflation rises will be temporary will in fact come to pass. But it is extremely worrying. It's not just about car prices, for instance. If, you, if you're a, a trade wonk, which sometimes you and I are, Jim, one of the, the, the interesting areas of the world at the moment is Asia. Asia, it, a bit like the economies that we're sitting in at the moment, and a bit like the United States, are enjoying a very robust economic recovery. And there's been amazing export data. Their stock markets are reasonably buoyant, not as buoyant as the States. But their supply chains are really, really strained. And if you look at a country like South Korea, which has been going gangbusters in terms of its overall growth rate, particularly through exports, the recent export data out of South Korea showed a 40% year-over-year increase, happily beating analyst expectations. But underneath the data, if you look at what individual companies are saying, is that they're, they're all shouting very, very loudly about things like um, freight costs, the fact that there is no capacity on ships, that there's a shortage of, of ships, of freight capacity. Shipping is being delayed all over the place because the ships are in the wrong place. And when they are in the right place, they can't actually get into the ports to either load or, in particular, unload their goods. And the raw materials for which these goods that are going onto ships eventually are made from is that their prices are going up. And it's not just that these supply pressures are widespread, which they have been for some time, but they appear to be getting worse. Delivery times for all sorts of things are lengthening all the time and that there are shortages of raw materials and that the freight problem just keeps getting worse. And this is affecting China, depending on how you measure it. It's either the world's largest economy or is about to become the world's largest economy. Their survey data is is now at a three-month low. All sorts of different activities are slowing down. The rates that people have to pay to get a container on a ship uh, are at all-time highs. We saw that through the second half of last year, these rates going up, and we've now exceeded those. I'm reading something from the FT today that tells me that one third of the global shipping fleet is effectively waiting for a berth. That's an extraordinary thing. And this is likely to get worse because, um, again, according to the FT, the peak season for container shipping sort of starts now or at least over the next few months, particularly when schools get, get back at the end of the summer 
and we start getting ready for Christmas. There are going to be longer and longer queues at, at, at ports, both in the United States and Europe. And of course, the final thing that's causing uh, or contributing to this havoc is the Delta variant. This is not COVID corner, but it is an important driver here. Delta spreading throughout Asia is causing a shortage of workers. So various countries, South Korea, Japan, even Australia, the favourite of the zero COVIDs, are having to go backwards on economic reopening or are fighting a really, really bad crisis. So it, it's, uh, it's looking very serious. And so this could lead to actual shortage of goods going through. I mean, it's very early in the year to be talking about Christmas, but we'll, we'll mark people's cards there. And I think that this thing about higher prices has got further to run, Jim. I think that these supply chain bottlenecks, which may well prove ultimately to be temporary, are certainly going to last through the second half of this year into next, which of course raises all sorts of interesting questions about monetary policy, about interest rates, and what's going to happen to our mortgage rates. And I think that you've been looking closely at a subtle but important shift in the way the ECB is likely to be setting interest rates going forward. Yeah, Chris, it's um, interesting to look at the US inflation report today. There were also elements in there of some wage pressures because there are uh, labor market shortages in certain parts of the economy. And um, I, looking at that, it kind of strikes me that given all of the problems of inequality and so on, and um, flat wage growth for many years in the United States, a little bit of wage inflation actually would be good from um, an economic perspective. Uh, in relation to the car situation, you know, you've described uh, what's happened in the States and elsewhere, but it's, it's interesting in Europe and in this country, um, I think another factor is that they, a lot of the demand for cars is now moving towards EV, electric vehicles or some hybrid type. And there are also serious shortages there. And, and there's also a sense that um, I think manufacturers have been caught across Europe somewhat by the change in consumer behavior in relation to car buying. So the whole climate change agenda is feeding into that car market. How this all feeds into central banks thinking obviously remains to be seen. Um, the Federal Reserve has been and continues to be quite relaxed in a relative way, um, believing that a lot of these price pressures are transitory. Last week, the European Central Bank, for the first time since 2003, actually had a reassessment of its inflation mandate. Um, previously, its inflation target was below but close to 2%. So if headline inflation hit 2% or, God forbid, went over 2%, uh, there were serious problems. Um, they have now set a new inflation target, which is a 2% inflation target and a pledge to tolerate any slight overshoot of that target. So this means the European Central Bank is ready to tolerate inflation slightly above 2%. And I think one of the things that has motivated this change is the mistake that Mario Draghi made. Sorry, not Mario Draghi, Jean-Claude Trichet, who was then president of the European Central Bank back in 2011, when we saw the first signs of recovery in the eurozone economy, inflation started to tick up and the European Central Bank made the mistake, sticking to its inflation mandate of increasing interest rates, which helped precip 
precipitate a, another downward lurch in the European economy. So I think the European Central Bank has learned lessons. And as the European economy emerges from uh, the COVID situation, you know, monetary policy is going to be a lot more accommodative of growth than would have been the case in the past. And they have also said that when interest rates are close to their lower limit, um, that they will use other monetary policy instruments to help the situation. So in other words, they're going to continue talking about quantitative easing. But it's interesting at it, well, I found it interesting, certainly, that during the discussions um, last week, they also discussed the concept of helicopter money, which is basically... Um, lodging money into your account. Uh, They have put that up there as an item that might be considered at some stage in the future. They have included housing very much in their mandate, monetary policy mandate, and they have also included climate change. So I, I think pretty, in a relative sense, strong stuff from the European Central Bank. Uh, that really means that for Irish mortgage holders and indeed anybody in Europe dependent on interest rates, it is clear that the changes made by the European Central Bank last week mean that ultra low interest rates can remain ultra low for longer than we might have believed. So for borrowers, um, these ECB changes certainly um, represent a semblance of good news. The thing that strikes me about all of this is that in terms of economic forecasting, if you'd said to either of us at the beginning of the year that come July, that we'd be looking at headline US inflation above 5%, the Delta variant causing havoc with people's lives, people's health, and of course, the economy as a direct result of that, that in fact, some people are speculating that growth through the second half of the year could be harmed by the spread of the Delta variant. You'd have seen comments about stagflation, lower growth than expected, and higher inflation. And financial markets, equities in particular, stock markets, would have been reacting very nervously, if not actually going down a lot. And as I said earlier on, the the way in which the US stock market in particular, but also plenty of other markets, are taking this on the chin. So nobody knows nothing. The The markets are saying quite explicitly that they're not worried about this inflation. I wonder, and it's only a question because I would never dare to forecast what's going to happen to markets, um, how long that can last. Because I, I do think that there's a limit to how much bad inflation news the financial markets can take. So that if I was a trader in equity markets, which I am most emphatically not, and I would not suggest that it's a good activity for anybody, actually. I would be very cautious about the short-term outlook for markets. Thankfully, I'm I'm not a trader trying to make my living in in that way. But it's a serious concern. And the the way in which all of this is pulled together was done very well by the Economist newspaper in its most recent edition, in which it headlined what it called the fault lines in the world economy. And it identified three. One is about COVID, and that's how it refers to the first fault line in the world economy is the divide between those that have had the jabs from the jab knots. Only those countries that do have the double vaccination or the single vaccination, in the case of the Johnson & Johnson one, will eventually, presumably, be able to uh, escape this these concerns that we're, we're talking about in terms of the Delta variant. But only one in four people now around the world have had even a first dose and only one in eight is fully protected. So there's still a large 
bulk of the world that still is very vulnerable to this and, God forbid, any other variant that does come along. And as The Economist says, even in America, there are plenty of states within within America that are vulnerable to the infectious Delta variant because they are vaccine resistant. The second fault line described by The Economist is that one that I spoke about, which is that this mismatch between supply and demand across a whole range of goods and services, not least microchips. Chips are the thing that the first the first thing that anybody talks about when you talk about this area and the economist talks about that cost of shipping that I mentioned earlier on and it references the way in which taking anything from China to the United States via ship has actually gone up by a factor of 4 on its pre-pandemic level that's an imbalance that's going to take some time to work its way through and The Economist, again, puts it quite well that in the services industry, we're much keener to go to the pub than to actually work in one at the moment. And that's causing all sorts of pressure in the hospitality labour market. And the other thing that we haven't mentioned in terms of price pressures is that there's a global house price boom going on, which I think is affecting even Ireland. And it's certainly present in the United States and the UK and plenty of other countries. And there's evidence, early evidence, that the fall in rents, for example, in London, which was um, inspired by the pandemic, is starting to reverse very, very sharply. And that's another inflation point. That's another thing that will affect potentially everybody, whether you are a renter or a buyer. The, the final fault line that, again, we've talked about before, we haven't mentioned today, but it is worth spending a couple of seconds on, is the reason why economies are going gangbusters at the moment, um, notwithstanding these supply pressures, we might worry about where they might go. But certainly at the moment, economies are booming. And that's got two main drivers. One is, obviously, as the the jabbed come out of uh, lockdowns and economies restart. But the other is is stimulus. And again, this particularly US story, but it's also been present in Ireland, in Britain and, and Europe is that governments have spent an awful lot of money supporting the economy, if not actually stimulating the economy. And it's a matter of arithmetic. As the the need for that stimulus ends, we're going to not just see the ending of stimulus headlines, but the, the consequences in terms of the arithmetic for economic growth for economies is that it will amount to a big minus number in the accounts. Interventions in the economy are going to have to be reversed sooner or later. That reversal will have direct economic consequences and it will have indirect, if not direct, consequences for financial markets as well. And the uh, economist is offering China as an example of this, as an economy that didn't in fact shrink in 2020. It was one of the few that didn't experience negative growth during the the main year of the pandemic. Um, It's tightening credit policy. So that's a big, big reversal. So there's there's lots of things happening out there that lead me to be somewhat cautious about the second half of this year. I'm not outright bearish on markets, if anybody wants to ask me that question. But I do think that this is combined with the observation that markets, many markets are at an all-time high and there's an awful lot to worry about. This might give me pause for thought if I was in the happy position of thinking about whether or not to invest any spare cash. 
that thankfully in this regard I don't have. It would be it would be a nice to have, but but I don't. Would you be putting cash into the markets now, Jim? I probably would, Chris, because um, there is the old adage that you sell in May and go away. Uh, certainly hasn't worked this year because we continue to see new highs in markets. Um, I totally accept all of the reservations you make about uh, what's going on in the world at the moment and how markets eventually will react to those pressures and um, we get a significant setback at some stage. Uh, but it's not clear to me we're there yet. And uh, you, you could have made several similar arguments last month, the month before. Um, so I, I, I'd probably sit tight. Personally, I would sit tight at the moment. I, I guess it ties into this whole debate about fiscal policy that you were talking about earlier. Um, we saw the G20 meeting in Venice at the weekend. 131 countries have now signed up to the global corporation tax changes that are being proposed and driven by Janet Yellen, uh, the Secretary of the US Treasury, and very much supported by Biden, obviously. But there are two pillars there. One is that their pillar one is to try and tax profits that are booked by large companies based on where they're generated rather than where the balance sheet resides. And the second pillar is the introduction of a minimum corporation tax rate of 15%. Why I, I mentioned this is clearly those tax changes are intended to address the individual fiscal problems of countries, particularly in a post-COVID world. But from an Irish perspective, uh, it's it's clearly we were one of the nine countries that actually uh, has not signed up to this accord yet. Um, there's Ireland, Barbados, Estonia, Hungary, Sri Lanka, Nigeria, Kenya, St. Vincent and the Grenadines. So, you know, we're, we're in there with an unusual um, array of countries. But yesterday, the IDA published its annual report for 2020. And lest anybody underestimate or fail to appreciate the significance of foreign direct investment in the Irish economy and the potential implications of those global tax changes, the numbers are pretty dramatic. At the end of last year, over 257,000 people um, working in companies supported by the IDA, 12.4% um, of total employment, another 205,000 indirect jobs dependent on those jobs, mainly in the very important SME sector of the economy. Uh, those multinationals had a payroll of 15.1 billion euro, they accounted for 68% or 255 billion of Ireland's total exports. And within that, US companies, 861 operating here, accounting for 70% of total employment. That's over 181,000 jobs. So, and, and, and another, um, I thought was a really interesting point is that 95% of those FDI jobs pay a salary in excess of 35,000 and the average is 56,100. So foreign direct investment is really important for the Irish economy and that's why uh, we will need to watch very, very carefully how this debate um, evolves over the coming months because the intention is that when the G20 meets again in Italy in October, I think, you know, they are hoping at that stage it will be possible to um, enact these changes that will then become operable in 2023. There is a lot of water to flow under the bridge before that can be achieved, not least 
trying to get the Republicans in the House of Congress to actually agree to these changes, which they fundamentally oppose at the moment. But it, it does send out some sort of warning signal about a sector that is incredibly important to the Irish economy. And then if you look at the other part of the Irish economy, that is the sort of indigenous economy, and particularly those sectors that have been most exposed to COVID restrictions, between the live register, the pandemic unemployment payment and the employment wage subsidy scheme, there's about 750,000 Irish workers at the moment in receipt of some type of state state support. So that's really indicative of two incredibly different economies. And um, personally, my view would be that these global corporation tax changes, if they ever do see the light of day, um, will not have that fundamental an impact on Ireland's economic model. But they certainly will um, knock something off the 11.8 billion in um, corporation tax that we collected last year and that continues to grow strongly into this year. So it's it's something that will be worth watching. And we discussed many of these issues in an earlier podcast with Seamus Coffey and UCC. Uh, but I definitely think it's an area we will be returning to over the coming weeks and months as this debate runs on and as global support for these changes actually gains momentum. Yeah, the thing that strikes me is that question you raised earlier on when you were talking about the US Congress. Uh, We do know that a lot of Republicans there believe that the way in which they can get control back in the midterms, which, you know, they're only just over a year away now, is by opposing basically everything that Biden does. And that would include corporation tax reform. But I've also seen suggestions that they think that, uh, and this might sound bizarre, but this is US politics we're talking about now, that one way in which they can guarantee getting back the control of the US government in 2022 is by opposing anything that Biden tries to do with respect to economic stimulus that withdrawal of stimulus that is going to happen sooner or later that I mentioned, they want to happen sooner. And that if there is a recession going into next year at some point, then that will increase negativity towards Biden. And they think we'll get them elected and uh, pave the way for perhaps even Donald Trump returning in two years after that. So that's, for some of us, an appalling vista. But that's something that we're certainly going to have to watch. Yeah, it is extraordinary the way politicians will actually sacrifice the good of the people for political gains. It's just amazing. Um, I saw a great clip today outside um, the doll here. Two of the rural TDs um, were up at the mic talking about the um, COVID legislation that's going through the Irish Parliament at the moment in relation to the reopening of um, indoor dining and the restrictions that will be put in place to allow that happen. And one of them said that I don't like the legislation. And the other guy said, well, we haven't seen it yet. Um, And that just shows you, uh, it was a great example of how the political system um, actually operates, which is quite depressing, to be perfectly honest. In relation to COVID, I mean, July 19th is now a a a pretty crucial day in the sense that international travel is set to resume. We're going to get a further opening up of the Irish economy in or around then. 
But at the same time, if you look at what's happening globally, um, social distancing rules in recent days have been tightened in Bangkok, Seoul and parts of Vietnam. Tokyo has entered its fourth state of emergency, which does send out serious messages about what the Olympics will look like over the coming weeks. Um, Sydney has seen a 45% spike in daily cases. The US in one week has seen a 47% spike in cases. But it's um, Anthony Fauci, the US equivalent of the chief medical officer, said that the main infection growth was in the states um, that are suffering from what he describes as ideological rigidity. In other words, they are ideologically opposed to um, being vaccinated and the consequences of that are feeding through into infection rates. So while all of this is happening, um, Ireland is, I think, thankfully going a further step in opening up. But across the water in the UK, um, Boris is really going gangbusters at this stage. What's going on? I watched him at his press conference this week where he was confirming that everything is going to be let rip, uh, my words, not his, on the 19th. And of course, a lot of people are very, very alarmed by this. Only the ultra lockdown sceptics, I think, are cheering what he's doing. For all of our criticism of government policy on both sides of the Irish Sea, I don't think either of us would be in that camp. The daily rate of cases in the UK is scary at the moment. The most recent figures were for 36,000 cases in the most recent 24-hour period, which uh, very roughly would, on a per capita basis, be equivalent to something like 3,000 cases in Ireland. And I know you're worried about there being five or 600 cases a day, um, which, is, which is up on where it was a month ago. So it, it's incredibly serious. There were 50 deaths in, in the last 24-hour period, which is a big increase. Hospitalizations are growing, and they are growing exponentially. So a lot of people are very worried about what's going to happen. I've been looking at all of the modeling that's been done, all of the projections that are being made by proper scientists about what's likely to happen. And there's huge uncertainty over this claim that the link between cases and hospitalizations as death has been sufficiently weakened to justify what Johnson is doing. If you wanted to back out a proper rationalization of what he's doing to suggest that what he's doing is thoughtful, albeit a, a calculated risk, it would be that that link is sufficiently weak. And there is some evidence in the data that he might just about be right if that's the rationalization that he's, he's using. But the the models, the uncertainty around the model projections are such that, you know, the upper limits around the bands of projections that one sees are truly terrifying. And that the conclusion that I have drawn, speaking very personally, is not that he's doing something based on a calculated assessment of the data and the risks around what's likely to happen next. My assessment is that he's just rolled the dice and he's doing what he's always done throughout his entire political career and taking a huge gamble. Now, of course, I sincerely hope that that gamble pays off. But I must admit, I'm really worried that they are doing too much too soon and that this Delta variant has got them worried. And looking at him at that press conference that he did earlier this week, I think he looks worried as well. He's, he's doing that classic political leader thing of aging while in office. 
And I suspect that the, the hints that they, they're backtracking a wee bit, doing a few U-turns on things like masks, nothing dramatic, but sounding much more cautious than they were a couple of weeks ago. It suggests to me that they're severely rattled by the numbers already and by the worst case projections of, of their scientists. So it's a big gamble. They're committed to it now. It's very clear that the numbers for cases, hospitalizations and deaths are going to go up a lot over the next few weeks in the UK. But if they're not coming down within a few weeks, then I think that we could be in for something quite serious here in the UK, to be honest. But time alone will tell. We know what they're going to do now and the, 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 the path is, is clear. Chris, before we wrap it, um, I was watching the some of the pictures and video emerging from London on Sunday before the European Championship final. I, I was reminded of I, Claudius, and the, the last days of the Roman Empire. Wow, extraordinary stuff. Um, England has problems with COVID, but by God, it certainly would appear to have incredible social problems at the moment. And I guess um, Boris is just feeding into that whole narrative. Rough stuff. It, it was very rough, and the, the, the images were um, un, unbelievable in, in many ways. Uh, there were things that I've never seen before, and I thought I'd seen it all. The, the public drug-taking was one, cocaine snorting um, on streets in London. The scenes from Leicester Square and Trafalgar Square and the like were just horrifying. And you're right, there are huge, huge social problems. And my takeaway from that, my soundbite from that is that they're not going to go away while Johnson and that crew that he has working for him in the British cabinet are, remain in charge. Thanks, Chris. Take it easy, Jim. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account www cjpeconomics.substack.com You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 